0: Hello and welcome to a new episode of Lowdown. Today I'm absolutely delighted to be joined by the head of player development at Lille, Adrian Tarascon. Adrian, welcome to the show. Hi Connor. thanks a lot for the
1: invitation. Thank you for having me.
0: Adrian, been looking forward to this one for a while. As we begin with every guest, we always ask first question on the show. What is the earliest football memory?
1: Well, uh I think it was uh, when I was a child like uh seven years old uh, i was living south of france and uh yeah it would be both the the few first tournaments and we were uh, the first time i went in a stadium was the stade velodrome in marseille close to where i was living at the time and uh, you remember the, the colors the the noise and and stuff like that and
0: how apparent early on in your youth was it for you adrian that football was an obsession?
1: very young actually i would say 13 14 uh was still playing in uh in youth categories but already i would say having an incl- a strong inclination towards coaching towards leading others towards the tactical analysis and pretty much uh progressively dropping the playing side to be more in the organizing side and stuff so so very early and i remember during all my studies because then i did business studies With some arguments with my parents over this, but I ended up doing business studies. But even then, I was more uh, doing tactical analysis randomly for for teams I was watching on TV or preparing some training sessions than really following the the business classes.
0: And that was something inheritable in the family in terms of coming up with a tactical plan, formulating stuff, if not mistaken. You're the son of a scientist. Yeah, yeah, that's correct.
1: Well, I think uh what he is able to do i mean and the the level of complexity of his analysis is the, far much more complex than uh, than uh, than football but uh, indeed my my father is uh, is uh, yeah one of the most renowned chemists in in France and uh, he he did many inventions notably on, on lithium batteries and he taught me several things at least values in terms of hard working Uh, it's someone in my life I always saw him working so uh, I think he passed me the same trying always to work to to improve to develop myself and uh, his creativeness also is a is a key thing he's known in in the scientific community where uh, uh, many people are very rigorous uh, to be able to do inventions and sometimes even uh, forget the formula because he didn't take notes of it but instinct. Very strong uh, creative mind, instinct, and I think he passed me a bit of this because, for instance, I always like to create new drills for players, never do the same twice. So we have a few points in common,
0: but uh, he's, he's a role model and I'm very far from him. You spoke about a bit of a varied skill set there, the run edge in between business management, coaching, and analysis. However, it was truly, really a PSG that you've begun to differentiate yourself and find a niche. I believe at the time, the work that you were doing in data, in data scouting was quite that in terms of bringing that to a fore in terms of individual and technical development. You see back in 2018, 2019, what the data department at Liverpool was doing, you guys implemented some of that at PSG, albeit more in the individual and technical development reel.
1: Yeah, so... Um... At the time, the, when we were in PSG, the, the, we only had one data analyst and the, the, dire- the board, the direction didn't believe that much into data. So the idea was very simple that we cannot make a difference in our use of data by uh, the variety of the models, the in-depth we take in the algorithms. But each moment uh, we work on the data, we have to get it mean- meaningful for the coaching staff and for the players. And I think uh, all the credit uh, goes to Thomas Tural and and his staff at the time. Because we came with our ideas, but they were the ones who uh, empowered the data work we did to make sure it had some some meaning. I mean, uh, he took it into account in the way he reshuffled the team. For instance, at some point, he was having uh, Mbappé on the wing and uh, playing with the trio up front. I think at the time it was Mbappé, Cavani and Neymar. And... Uh, there were some conclusions from the data about Kylian, I would say, having too much possessions eaten in the game if you add them to the ones of Neymar, et cetera, et cetera. And so uh, Thomas changed his way of seeing the starting 11 from this. We had many other examples, how we optimize the occupation of the, of the box, creating space in the box, and he created many drills out of this. So uh, when you have a coach and your coaching staff who is that willing to take the the data to the next step, which is on the pitch about how to organize his team, how to optimize the organization of his team, then it's uh, easy. So I would say all the credit was to them. And it was really about, we don't have that much in, in terms of data compared to others, but everything we find, everything we can
0: research, we make sure it was useful. And you spoke upon one of those coaches there, Thomas Tuchel. Um, him, Unai Emery, another coach that you worked under, obviously, masters of the Huyin football, very methodical coaches. You spoke yeah. there about obtaining buy in from Thomas Tuchel, indeed. I mean, how did you integrate your own approach and observation, Adrian, within their style of play? I think, in the first steps, especially if you go
1: back to Unai Emery and Thomas Tuchel, I, I didn't have the I would say the the freedom or even the the reputation I could build. Still, I think I really started integrating my own ideas when I when I left Paris, either with uh, Robert Moreno, then Nico Kovac, and here with the coaches I worked with in Lille. But in the first stage, I mean, uh, you're first of all learning. I, I was still young, of course. I, I had my ideas. I tried to pass some ideas. Uh, many of them actually were uh, were taken but uh, i don't have any football player past although these two coaches unai and thomas are totally open minded so it was easier but you have many talented people in the room many people in the room that won many trophies uh, you're a young french guy from paris so first of all you need to when you talk you need to be very effective when you talk to the coaching staff you need to make your point and if you say something it better happen Otherwise, you lose credit and you can lose credit very fast. So this was the idea, winning credit step by step. In the meantime, learning from not only these two uh, incredible coaches and uh, getting to think about my methodologies and implementing them, especially in the final stage, especially under Thomas in Paris, where we went further into the player development, as you mentioned. And uh, the breakthrough in player development was quite simple. Uh, We were using data and scouting not as the best and as you can see the the recruitments obviously it was not always followed in paris data scouting Uh, but we had the feeling that the more teams are going to get the data although it's not the same although they can analyze it in different ways less and less there would be unknown players so we're starting the moment where we thought okay we are going to have to optimize the players we have and for two teams with similar budgets, the best competing one is the one who's going to make the most of the, of its players. So we really integrated this approach, and uh, there was an opportunity to integrate it, which was that at the time PSG had problems with financial fair play. So it ended up the first players on this uh, on this list of players to be developed were uh, Moussa Diaby, Christopher Nkunku, Stanley Suki, because all these players at the end of the day, then we can argue. Uh, I mean, I'm not in the sporting director' task about uh, the price, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, but the idea of the sporting director of the time until Enrique was to make sure that we develop at most the youth, because some were going to stay in the team, and the others would have to be sold at the maximum price possible in order to comply
0: with financial fair play. And I'll bring you back to the very start of that conversation, Adrian. You spoke both process of attaining credibility. Now, there's a lot of people yeah. that listen to the show as well, aspiring analysts that want to make the jump that you did. But again, looking at that process of attaining credibility, we speak about feedback feedback cycles with first-team coaches. Just wondering at PSG and in your subsequent roles at Monaco and now Lille, is that feedback from a more formal environment or would it be more informal conversations on the fly in training and in the day-to-day routine in football it will be
1: 90% of the time informal for sure uh, informal then uh, you obviously have moments where you can ask about the people around you what what they feel about this or that situation uh, if i re- if i reflect on myself i think uh, i had to improve a lot in my in my communication notably so uh, i always been someone Uh, with unfortunate enough to be quite poor in communication, especially at the start, uh, but fortunate enough to be aware of it. So always wondering, did I make the right move? Did I say the right things? Uh, What did you think about my intervention? So always searching for feedback. I'm someone really, I would say, almost obsessed, if not too much obsessed about feedback, not too... uh, not to know that I didn't, did things well or stuff. It's just because I feel it's an area where I can really improve. And when it comes to giving feedback to to players or giving feedback to coaching staffs, then you have to feel when is the right moment. And it's something you learn with the time. Uh, not later than this weekend. Uh, we were led 1-0 at halftime against Montpellier. So you feel the atmosphere. We uh, We had lost the game before. Uh, 1-0, you feel the emotions of the coaching staff around you, of the coach. You know where you can help, when it's not the moment to help. And it's uh, developing relations. For instance, here in Lille, uh, I think for some players, I would say my my view or having my views at halftime is kind of an emotional comfort. I don't know if I'm right or I'm wrong in what I say to them, but it seems to them that... Uh, they like to see the game through my eyes sometimes and that it gives them more assurance for the second half. So then it's developing relations. So
0: it's an ongoing process always. And highlighting that blind spot in your own communication, Adrian, and taking effective steps to address that, how subsequently has that informed the way that you coach players? Uh, Totally, but... uh... I had blind
1: spots everywhere. So you're you're asking me about the communication. So I'll stick to this. But uh, the more you work with players, the more you work with different players, because, okay, my role here is individual development coach. So maybe for the, the coach is the same. I don't know. I didn't ask him, but basically I have 20 roles in one. Each player is going to be another psychological topic. Each player is going to require his own approach this is something, the more I practice this work, the more I did this work, I realized like I cannot take, uh, like, for instance, dropping names a little but a uh, totally different approach for a player called Mohamed Bayou we have here, then Adam Naz, then Edon Zegrova. Uh, simple stuff, but some require more warmth. Uh, we'll, want, we'll need a hug in the morning. You'll have to do the small talk about how in their evening and stuff. Others are colder, straight to the point, just a shake of hand, and you only go to them when you have valuable information. They only value, I would say, the, the strength information and don't need all the, all the small talk around it. So, so you, you learn about this and you adapt to all this. And then, of course, uh, the same goes in my part of role for each member of the coaching staff. How can I be the most effective in my communication to help them, help them help the coach, help them
0: help the players? And same for the coach. Well, and you speak about it there being all encompassing. It's not only one role, it's 20 roles combined into one. Yeah,
1: I think uh, the moment I think, okay, I was two two or three years already in player development. I had to realize that... um, I was lots, you know, trying to improve my methodologies, my processes. And I think it's something I did. But until the point you realize in player development, you're not, it, it's human material. You're not going to apply a canvas and replicate, replicate, replicate. Each player is going to be different. Each player is going to have his struggles. Something that worked for this player, player A is going maybe to work for player B, but only for some time and it's going to be less effective. So you, you get to learn. And now my methodology is basically having different approaches, having different tools in terms of learning, having different approaches in my drills in terms of learning and see what is working for this or that player until I find to the preferential way of learning for this player or that player and try to go further when I identify their preferential way of learning, when uh, we get closer in terms of... uh, social affective uh, connection, et cetera, et cetera.
0: And what typically then would you see as the biggest gap when it comes to player development, not only within Lille, but within the broader European football ecosystem and world ecosystem?
1: I think uh, at the moment uh, player development is only getting back, uh, I would say, at the core of the game. And again, a bit like uh, I was mentioning that we did player development because with the data uh, from the scouting point of view, we were afraid that all the players get more or less known and the differentiation would have to be not on spotting well, but on developing well. Uh, I think there was a clear trend at least between 2005 to 2015-18 of quite a focus on the athletics the athletic evolution has been outstanding and i think we developed the players more in the intensity of the game it i mean it was these years were uh, a kind of golden era for jurgen klopp uh, playing style based on intensity Uh, it extends towards the mauricio pochettino notably in tottenham and okay we have all this athletic evolution but at some point how do you (laughs) when When uh, Klopp is outrunning all the teams with his intensity and stuff, how do you put back, not saying that they don't have very technical and skillful players, but how do you put back positional intelligence? How do you put back technique into the players? If you have this more intense game, 1v1s all around the pitch, how do you put back the essence of the game about analyzing time, paints, about the first touch, etc.? And I think this, of course... Uh, is now in the debate for the five, six last years because you have a lot of tactical evolutions. I was reading a paper the other day saying that there was more, an assumption that there was more tactical evolutions in the last two years after COVID than in the five, six before. And I believe it's true when you see all the evolution, especially in Premier League. So all this evolution of the game, you have to pass it to the players. So first of all, is the game in its absoluteness uh, all over the world ready to pass all this information to the players. Then players are not robots. How do you pass this information to the players? And I think we have a big problem in at least in France, but I think in many societies we have a problem in our education process. School is too scholar, is not effective enough, and football has often replicated the models of learning or of teaching from school into football. And they're not working many many times. Very often, they're not working. And even more towards uh, football players that tend to be more often than average, I would say, uh, learning in ways that are less conventional than the, the school way of learnings. Therefore, for me, there's this first step of realizing all we can pass to the players, technically, tactically, and then the future is about improving first the way of learnings and then improving the learning capacities of the players, how training focus. Uh, I saw some articles about Liverpool trying to have some, uh, I think they were working with a company at least on set pieces and on penalties, Neuro 11. I remember the name, I think. Yeah. To Euro get the into the zone and to train the focus. And this is the future. If tomorrow the methodology is aligned and, you have the capacity to pass to a player that's able to learn. And you have done your teaching methodology well to pass all the information you want to the player. You're just going to be looking after expanding the learning capacities of your player. So we're going to get into this. This will be the next step.
0: It's very interesting you speak about that, especially the tactical trends. You see the way the modern game has gone as well as reverting back to kind of high man-mark orientated press. What does it mean for the future game? It's so, so interesting. But then there is a dichotomy, right, Adrian, between results and development. How we evaluate both. And it's so interesting you spoke about COVID there, about how that was basically the origin for a lot of these tactical innovations that we're seeing today. But, I mean, how do you balance that, the results development piece? Because obviously, in your role, right, the first team, they are more focused on results. Week to week, Saturday, Tuesday, if you're in Europe, you're obviously more focused about development. I mean, yeah. how, in, how intentional can you actually be for improvement in an environment where the game and the industry, be it football, is evolving at breakneck speed?
1: So I think you have two questions. One, first of all, even though I would say the coaching staff, obviously their main focus is going to be on the results. Uh, my task from the club is clear: is to get results are one thing, and I'm here to support them. But still, my main focus is the month to month, the development of the players uh, in a in a broader scale. Then, uh, in this development, uh, you have an exam every three days or every week, which is the game, because obviously, uh, people and the players themselves are not uh, examining the game the same way than the trainings, or sometimes they don't have access to the trainings first of all and the players themselves. Then you have to think, okay, we have a squad here exactly of 22 players. Let's say 13 or 14 are very playing regularly, but how do you get to develop the eight that are playing much less? So for these ones, uh, the examination of the week, uh, the moment where we're going to try to apply some stuff to test some stuff is going to be the match day minus three, not only when it's very open, where it's wider distances in training, And where often our coach is going to do the starting team of the weekend against the other team. So how do these players, uh, confronting to one of the best teams in the league, because at the moment our starting 11 and our team is one of the best in the league, how do they solve the problems? So, for instance, we prepare very intensely these sessions and we take these games that are tactical preparation games very seriously as well in order to mark the development of these players that uh, play less. But the focus for me is clearly
0: on the on the development of the player. And it's really interesting. I was reading a recent article uh, translated into English on the Sotras that you did. I thought it was absolutely fantastic. You spoke about the concept of data tuning. Now, yeah. my question for you in relation to that is obviously you're working on the development of a good few players here. I mean, is the consensus coming from first team management? Is it coming from the sporting director in terms of right, we need to improve this player for first team purposes? We need to improve this player for player trading purposes, or is it just at the coaching, at the coach's behest?
1: No, so it was never in, in Lille, it was never that direct because so we don't have a sporting director. The president is both CEO and, and I would say sporting director. But here we have a president who is very, I would say, focused on on winning games. Winning games for him is the best marketing tool. It what allows you to sell uh, sell jerseys to uh, to fill your stadium and to and to sell players and to promote them. Uh, that's one thing. Then it's true that even in Lille, with some players, we went far enough when you feel there is going to be, I would say, a market, or you know they're going to be on the market, and there are some details you cannot ignore. And obviously, it's very often players that you want to put on the market in the Premier League because Premier League clubs are much more careful on the data than other clubs. Uh, So obviously, you're going to sometimes give some advice to the players to upgrade some metrics uh, of their... uh, of their radars, of their of their data. And they're look, going to look nicer in the data, at least maybe not for a, from a data analyst precise view, but from a broader view, from what a sporting director would look at on the data, they will look much nicer. And not by changing their game, simply by giving them some advice uh, about which areas should you progress in priority, giving them, and this is in the full package of player development we have here, giving them a risk reward approach. Uh, finding the best passing probability percentage to reach the the highest efficiency zones. So this is the idea. Then uh, when I was hired in Monaco, it was much more, I would say, aggressive in the way that it was clearly a trading model. You're here to develop players to try to maximize the sell. And when you want to maximize the sell, if you want to get the extra million, so uh, you will have in the end to optimize the data. And actually, uh, when, for instance, some players like Aurelian Chouamini were scouted by Liverpool, that is known to be, I would say, extensive, extensively uh, data scouting. It was kind of a pride because uh, we worked a lot uh, on on that. But it's also the merit of the player. If you take a player like Chouamini, uh every five week cycle, he was asking for his progression on some key metrics. He understood for the position what were his key metrics. He was always looking forward uh how we can improve defensively what were the kpis to improve defensively etc cetera, etc cetera. and yet he had, he had very good ability to translate the kpis in how during the game can i use my qualities to maximize these kpis for instance ball progression he's a tremendous player just when he recovers the ball first pass vertical to break lines and he has many progressive meters by the pass just in the offensive transition moment. I recover and I launch the first pass vertical. It's the work we we did together, but not only. It's an outstanding player again to translate the KPI into how you can maximize this KPI in the pitch. And some players have the ability to do it, others not.
0: Very interesting. I mean, it seems to me that players like Shuamani were aware at Monaco that it was a player trading model. You know, I'm starting to think how does that affect really the relationship with data? Because it's kind of cool in a way. In one way, it seems to gamify the process of player development.
1: I get what you mean. Like for me, data is is essential because for a very long time we have just been and it's okay but saying subjectively okay this player is improving this player is improving but sometimes when you look at the data you realize that not so much but then also you have always to to put some nuance into the data because uh in the data context is everything so uh the team style has an impact uh everything can have an impact i mean the global the global trend of performance is going to have a huge impact on the individual performance data. This is something I realized doing data tuning. Like sometimes your player is kind of performing well, but the team is having a shit day. So the team is, he is not going to be able to score his ambitions before game. Because for instance, if I take the same example as Tramini, we had three approaches. Like first, so we start before the game, we try to identify to guess what is going to be the context of the game. Is it a game where you're going to be able to score a lot on your offensive metrics, defensive metrics, or is it going to be an overall game where you can perform on both? And then for each scenario, we had some scores. Like for instance, okay, if it's an offensive game, we believe you're going to have a lot of chances. You know you need to be at 13 to 14 deep progressions today because we want you to be seven in average. But uh, in the games we were suffering, in Nice and stuff, you only did two because you were very good recording in uh, defensive regains, et cetera. So uh, for the players, it's understanding the context of each game, being humble, because at the end of the day, it's a collective sport. Uh, We're not like the players, when they're on the pitch, they're not counting their progressive passes or something. I mean, with the intensity of the game, you're just thinking about football. But it's just about understanding how is the game, and what you can give to the game. And then, of course, you try to get some evolutions on the metrics.
0: I mean, that's really cool, Adrian, speaking about all that. and I mean, as we approach the end of this conversation, Mm -hmm. where do you see the data and player development industries sinking in the future of football?
1: So... uh... Personally, I I think data should always come after processes. Uh, Having experienced this in a good way in Paris than in other clubs, I would say, in a in a worse way when you have data, but it's not at the service of your processes, it's going to be weaker. So for me, the first step in player development is understanding for you, for your coach, for for your game model, what are your competences per position? And then data is about finding ways to measure these positional competences. Uh, Many of them are already measurable. I think like uh, if you take for a midfielder again, uh, how how often is he going to be vertical at recovery versus he's going to do a negative pass and slow the tempo of the game is very important for many teams. Uh, How often is he going to be able to do a ball drive at recovery? The same, like a ball drive superior to 10 meters is going to be important. Then there's other metrics which are yet to code better because the more the game is intense, the more you get into relations of areas, but also identifying the press, for instance, for a pullback or a center back is the pressure of the center back coming from the inside, from the outside. How do you solve this? This is something eminently at the moment, technical, tactical, and I didn't find a, a way yet to translate it into data. So I think, Research is going to develop on this, and and some people might find a way to make sure that we have all the time more positional competences translated into data. And if we have this, it will make player development more efficient. It would make, because for me, there's a clear relation between player development and scouting. It will make scouting also more efficient, always in the ambition to address which players are both today able of having a better, I would say, understanding of the game, reading of the game, and the players who can be developed to having this reading of the game. This is the core of scouting.
0: And it's really interesting because if you look at your whole career as an arc to date, you can call this period of your career as serving quite a rigorous apprenticeship, working with coaches, no (laughs) less than Unai Emery, Thomas Tuchel, Christophe Galtier, currently Paula Fonseca, upon many others that were after leaving out. But you spoke in Osatras before about some of the biggest lessons you've learned working on the cutting edge of football. And you spoke about there's no universal truth, only one's own path.
1: I agree. Uh, well, I agree with myself. It's a bit strange, but uh, yeah, it's true. I said this. Uh, after, after approximately 10 years, Working with so many visions, it's true that I think uh, I don't have the count now, but it's seven or eight coaches in ten years of football. So uh, I cannot say all had the same view, but I, I'm totally convinced that uh, uh, processes are important. But then, no, no view or no idea is going to be better than than the other one. Uh, each coach has his method. Uh, Most of the best coaches in the world have many points in common, but it's true that uh, you have to be very humble because sometimes it's also a matter of moment. I mean, uh, something working for a coach would have not worked six months ago because the players, because the club, because etc. I mean, on the pitch, we know the interactions. We know how complex the game is, but off the pitch also. The locker room, the staff, the club in its general... Uh, the collaboration, uh, sometimes competition with sporting director, president, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. It's extremely complex in football to get everyone aligned into the same objective. So everything is going to matter in this complex environment. I think the most important is to get everyone in order, having your, your locker room in order, and then whatever the idea is if you're able to defend your game model to teach it well you can have results but the key thing is having a clear paradigm having a clear vision first of all
0: sounds like there's no golden key or silver bullet no one size fits all philosophy i uh, have having worked now in free clubs and also with
1: kind of some turnovers with players you cannot underestimate the impact of a locker room uh, here we have a totally different locker room, for instance, in Lille, this year with, I think, uh, eight arrivals and six departures than last year. It's a totally different context. Not better, not worse, but totally different. And you cannot... What would have worked last year is not going to work this year with a different locker room point.
0: So you always have to adapt. And Adrian, this has been a podcast I've really enjoyed. Thank you for so much for coming on. But before we close, I mean... Obviously, you've enjoyed quite the illustrious apprenticeship, thus far. For anyone that would be wishing to take any inspiration from this podcast and follow in your shoes, I mean, what advice would you have for them? To
1: First of all, to work hard, because at the end of the day, uh, football is a very competitive is a very hard environment. And... Uh, <laughs> it it hurts me still and it hurted me more than it done me good so uh, i w- i wouldn't say that uh, it's an easy way but at the end of the day uh, if you work hard if you give everything when you go in the, v- the evening and the mirror in the difficult days you still have this you still have the pride of having gay having given everything you could and this is important. And then the second thing, it's about network. Find a mentor, find a sponsor, find find someone who can uh, help you grow because it's very, very difficult. And uh, maybe I'm a counterexample on this, but uh, if I should give an advice uh, to the egocentric and individualistic me of 10 years ago, don't think you should go alone because you're good. Accept the way it works. It's a network uh, sport. Uh, find a mentor, someone who can sponsor you and let you grow in one club and stuff. This is an advice I've given. F- find the right sponsor. Because uh, I managed to do some road. I don't know if it's a good path or not. Uh, being more in a alone approach without mentorship and stuff. But it's very hard. So I don't recommend following the same path. I don't think it's the most successful one. Fantastic. Adrian, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you, Connor, for inviting me.